Um, so, so basically, uh, This American Life has been on the air for t almost 21 years now. And, 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 and there were a couple things about the show from the very beginning that were different from other kinds of broadcast journalism that preceded it. Like I started off working for, for a news network, working for National Public Radio, which is our version of the ABC. Um, and, uh, and, and, and if I had to say that like, the two most important things uh, that, that were different about our show from the start, uh, the, one um, had to do with the structure of the stories, and the other is that we were just out for fun. Like that, 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 and, and, and honestly, like being out for our own pleasure seems like a ridiculous thing to say that that would be an innovation. But, but if you listen to kind of like standard news, you, you know what I'm talking about. And, 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 so, and, and, and so we are consciously looking to amuse ourselves in all the stories. And one of the things I thought was wonderful about, about the student pieces today is that several of them really, like I thought, had a really nice sense of pleasure. They were funny, uh, like in a way that, that is, is rare to hear. Oh, one of the ways that we're, we're having fun is that we're in the tape a lot. Um, that, is, that is, I think a lot of people, when they start doing uh, broadcast journalism, they don't put themselves in the quotes. I feel like, in fact, like the most common way, like when I'm talking to even professional reporters about ways to make their stories more interesting and more sparkly, just, 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 just better, um, is to be in the quotes. And I think one of the things that, 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 that often is, is missing in stories is that you, you know, when, when, when we go to the quote, you'll just hear the interviewee, and you won't hear the interviewer kind of talking to them. I want to play you an example of this. This is a story that we did, kind of a serious story. We went out on this aircraft carrier that was flying bombing missions over Afghanistan. And this is just like three months after, after September 11th. And we opened our show, actually, um, you know, with this idea of like, okay, so right now the Taliban, Osama bin Laden is in hiding, and the Taliban are, are you know, are, are on the move. And, um, and, and, and as part of the U.S. response uh, on a warship uh, out in uh, the Arabian Sea, one sailor was doing her job in the war on terror. And then we went to this clip. My name is Creevon Scott. Um, just filling up the vending machines. Is that your is that your your, your full-time job? Yes. It's your full-time job. Yeah. Filling up vending machines all day <laughs> for 12 hours. <laughs> yeah. Waiting for my cue. What are the big sellers? I'm like, right now it's Snickers and Starburst. Snickers goes real fast. What's the least favorite candy on, on board? Bonkers, the fruit chews. We got boxes of those and still have them. <laughs> Sometimes if we don't have anything else, we'll just put it all rolls of Bonkers and they'll still stay in here. Some people hate Bonkers. Yeah. They just nobody likes Bonkers. We still got them, but we've been ordering a whole lot of new stuff, so I've been trying to keep like a whole variety of things in here. Like Crunchy Munch, we just got the Crunchy Munch and the cheeses we normally didn't have in here. Cheeses? Yeah, the cheeses, the different kind of cheeses. So that's Alex Bloomberg, one of our producers at the time, doing the interview. And one of the things I like about it is that you hear how excited he is to be getting the quote. Like, he thinks it's really funny. And he, by the way, is totally dragging out this quote. Like, as broadcast students, you know that, like, great quotes, that don't just occur in nature. Like, like you, you have to make them come to exist. And so she totally, like, she says, like, well, you know, like, I have, a, you know, like, I'm going, I'm filling up the vending machines. And he's totally, like, he thinks it's funny. So he's just totally, like, tell me another candy people hate. Now tell me another one. You know, like, like it's his pleasure in the quote that makes it that makes it interesting and makes the whole thing and his surprise um similarly like like in the tape this is um sarah Koenig, the host of serial years before she was doing that uh, there was a huge hurricane in the united states hurricane katrina and she went to a town outside of um 
outside of New Orleans called Purlington. And just listen to how she handles this moment. The streets have been cleared by now, so you can see the plan of what was the town. But on either side of the roads where the houses used to be, there's carnage. Some houses have collapsed on themselves. Some, the wind is stripped to the frame, so they almost look like new construction. As people showed me their homes, it was hard to know how to react. Which is your house? Behind. Uh -huh. Oh my god. <laughs> well, it's just so, that tree is so perfectly crushing your house. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but it's like, it's so uh, shocking. It's, uh, it's a mess, along with the water that went through it. I mean, she's laughing at, an accident, at a hurricane victim, you know, like she's laughing at the victim, you know, like, like, but I feel like, you know, her laughter is like getting across a lot of feeling about like how amazing, like how else will you convey how, how shocking it is to stand there and just see like a tree in, in, you know, going into a house, like you could write it, but like her shock conveyed through her laughing at him gets across so much, so much more. Um, the other, the other thing that was, that was different about our show from the beginning uh, was literally the structure of the stories. And, and one of the things that was interesting to me, could I, like, somebody like, um, the person who did the story on um, uh, Pat, who did that story? That's you. Like, what kind of class did you do that for? You just did it for this? Like, and, and had you gotten, like, instruction on, like, how to do narrative storytelling or anything? Uh uh, yeah, we've done mostly live broadcast training, so mm -hmm. nothing. We've done a few like short feature classes, but I think I just like listen to a lot of podcasts. Right, right. Yeah. Like, like, and in and in and in your broadcast training, do they talk about narrative? Do they talk about like? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and like you know, building tension and all that. They do jazz. Yeah. That's very unusual. How many of you have have people talked about that in your in your classes? I'd be very curious. Some. Okay, so just to lay out a, th a theory about that, I'm going to come back to your piece. Like, like so, so, so basically, like, one of the things about our show that was different is, is that basically we were structuring the stories, had to do with the structure of the stories. And so the stories, instead of being structured the way a news story is structured, where it's most important fact first, and the second most important fact, and the third most important fact, and the way you write a news story is with a lot of, like, topic sentences. You have those here? Yes, they're a worldwide phenomenon. Okay, good. Um, and so, you know, like, so, so you know, the, there'll be topic sentences say today, you know, the government decided the following thing, and then you fill out the paragraph with a few more sentences and a clip of tape from somebody. Um, then you say, well, you know, the, the Liberal Party says the following about, there's a new topic sentence, here's what the Liberal Party says, and a sentence or two, and then a quote from the Liberal Party, and, you know, the, like, the other party says this, and a sentence or two, and a quote from them. And then, uh, but analysts say that actually they're both full of shit like another topic sentence, and then you hear an analyst who say that, you know, like, this is where the country's going in the wrong direction, no matter what. And like, you know, just like topic sentences, and that's a, that's a kind of a structure, in a way like, like the way you would write a school essay, and a way that, like, honestly, a lot of news is written. And appropriate, I, I have to say, for, for breaking news. Uh, we just want the most important information first, and quick analysis. Um, but, in, it, but what we decided is we were going to organize around narrative for a bunch of reasons. And by narrative, I mean literally, like, if you think about it, like, narrative, like, I feel like people throw around that word and it can be intimidating if you're a beginner. But really, all narrative is is a sequence of actions. Literally, you're just building a thing. So, like, this thing leads to this next thing, leads to this next thing, leads to this next thing. It's not smart. That's a really important thing about narrative. It's, it's entirely, it's not a smart structure. It's entirely about motion. And literally all you want to do is set up like a sequence of actions. So this leads to this leads to this leads to this. And when you do that, you get the benefits of all these things. You automatically create narrative tension because people will want to find out what happens next. And I have to say, like when I started doing, doing radio when I was 19 and I started as an intern at, um, at, at NPR. 
And, um, and I was really bad at first. And I can play you clips of tape to prove that. That's not just some kind of humble brag. And, uh, and, and, and for me, like, everything changed when I understood, like, oh, I could just interview people, have them lay out a story beat by beat by beat. This happened, and then this happened, and then I felt this, and then I said this, and then he said this back to me, and then I said this back to him. And by doing that, you create narrative tension because people go, like, what's going to happen next? And suddenly you have something that's very, very magnetic. And, uh, and, and hard to turn off. As an example, I want to play you, this is a story that was an actual opening to our show. I tried to think of the most banal story I could find. I think this might be it. Um, so basically, it's a story of this guy, Joel. He worked as an office, and the office manager every now and then would have her nine-year-old just come to the office, and so the nine-year-old would be there, and like a good kid, kind of tomboyish. And she would just kind of help out around the office. She would pass mail out. And over, over the time that I was there, she and I, developed this really, this kind of teasing relationship. She would come into my office and she would drop my mail off and stick her tongue out at me and I would sort of fake chase her down the hallway or something and, you know. That's sweet. Um, yeah, yeah, she's an incredibly sweet kid. And so there's this day when, uh, it's early in the morning, I've arrived at the office and, uh, and I go into the bathroom um, and when I come out of the bathroom, I have my glasses in my shirt pocket rather than on my head. And I look down this hallway and I see um, this small person walking towards me. And I then um, get down and start to crab walk towards her. So I, so I sort of go down on my haunches and, um, and put my hands up as if they're claws and kind of waddle, waddle towards her. Okay, now at this point, nobody turns off the radio. Like, literally, I defy you to be like, nah, forget it. You know, like, like you know what I mean? Like, like, but if you think about the facts of this story, this is not an interesting story. Like, this is not a good story at all. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like we take pride in finding stories with, like, amazing fact patterns and children switched at birth. This is not a good story. This is just, like, somebody goofing around at the office. This is not a good story. But it sounds like a good story because he's telling it as a sequence of actions. He's literally saying, like, this happened and then this and this. And you just want to know what happened. Do you, want to hear, do you want to hear what happened? <laughs> of course you do, yes, because, 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 because that's the laws of narrative, right? Like, that is actually the laws of narrative. That's, inc that's why it's so powerful. And, and uh, I'll, I'll play it for you. And as I'm waddling towards her, I say in this kind of creepy voice, oh, no, I can't believe you're here today. <laughs> and then at that moment, as, as I say, today, she comes into focus. And I realize, in fact, it's not at all the young girl who I thought it was, but it's in fact one of our interns, a business intern who, um, uh, who is a, a, a midget. And so she comes into focus and I see her and I'm horrified and I go bolt upright and I stand up and I say, oh my, my God, I'm terribly sorry. I, 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 I thought you were somebody else. <laughs> and I think to myself, who could she possibly think that somebody else is? <laughs> and I wonder at the time, should I have tried to explain it to her? And it seems to me like one of those situations where it only gets worse the more you try to explain it. The only thing I could do is, in fact, apologize and then end all contact with her forever right there. <laughs> And then on the radio, I, I, I did narration here, which said something like, so, so the woman introduces herself to Joel, and she tries to put him at ease. Uh, apparently, if you're a little person, this happens like every other week. 
And um, and uh, but there's something about this kind of moment where 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 like you you know you have this moment of like such humiliation where you've done something so awful you just totally stays with you you know and and I think that's very telling that it happens to him at the moment where he's like I'm the cool guy at the office who knows how to talk to kids you know like like you know it's, I think it, I think those moments happen you know like you're out you're with your friends you know like you're you, you you just whatever and you're like you're talking you're laughing like you are the party okay. And then at some point, you somehow like catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror and you realize you are an ass. You know, like, like that's the moment I'm talking about. And it's just really, and it's piercing that moment. And why is it so piercing? I think it's so piercing because I think at that moment, we catch a glimpse of ourselves the way that others see us. Like, and it doesn't look good. Like that's just like, and that's very sobering thing. Okay, so this is the second thing you need in this structure of storytelling. All the stuff I just said about, like, what are we relating to in the story? Like, this kind of, what is this kind of moment? That's just an idea that I'm tacking on to the end of the story. So if you think about the narrative of the story, the narrative is just, you know, this little girl comes into the office. Uh, this is such a primitive story. Um, one day he goes into the bathroom, comes out, glasses in pocket, a clue to what's going to happen. Uh, walks like a crab, realizes it's an adult, flees. Okay, so then after that, the idea is there's something about that kind of moment. I'm literally saying the words. There's something about that kind of moment, like like what is it, and talking about it. And I feel like, in, and, then, and then talking, basically in this structure of storytelling, you want the story part, and then you want an idea. You want to say, here is the general thing that this is illustrating. And when we're evaluating stories for the radio show, like we're looking at a, a ton of pitches, all kinds of people we can interview, like what we're evaluating is, these criteria, is the plot surprising? Does it lead to some thought about the world which is surprising? And it can be a small thought about the world, but it has to lead to some thought about the world. And then, and then also, there has to be somebody to, it should be, the whole thing has to be surprising. If something isn't surprising, it's dead. And then, and then, and then extra credit for, is there somebody, is there somebody, there usually, there always actually has to be somebody who you can relate to. You know, like, like if there's nobody to relate to, there, there's just nobody to, uh, there, you can have no feeling. There's no, there's no emotional investment. Um, and, um, and, then, uh, and then extra credit if it's funny and extra, extra credit if it's funny and sad in the same story. Like, obviously, that's, that's the killer sweet and salty mix that makes people rich. Um, but not us. Um, okay. And then, and then the other thing... Uh, so, so, so that's the structure that we're working over and over. And one of the things that was interesting to me about the about these about these pieces um, was was uh, how that was there. I'm going to say one more thing that that I just so I don't, or one or two more things just so I don't forget before I get to the uh, these tapes. And that is, um, uh, there, there's a book out. There's a comic book, a 230-page comic book that this woman put out called called Out on the Wire, and um, and it's. Fantastic! If you're interested in this, in doing this kind of work, um, uh, and it's by this cartoonist named Jessica Abel. And years ago, like like 15 years ago, 17 years ago, we did we did a comic book with her that was 30 pages long, where we said, "Here's how you make a story like this." And then and then just last year, she she which she spent like four years on this, but it just got published in the last few months. Uh, she put out this book, which is which, which she went to Radiolab and Snap Judgment and The Moth and uh, the Gimlet shows and ba- and basic and to the Transom Workshop and basically said basically talk to them all about how do you do this work. And she, she did such a beautiful job distilling, like, how can you tell if the story you're doing is worth doing or how to focus your story so that it is of maximum interest? Um, and, she, and so if you're interested in this, I totally recommend that. You can get it on Amazon. Um, and, and, then the, and then the other thing I, I want to say, just 
because I'm scared I'm going to forget to say it, is I think, I think that when, when we're beginning in journalism, there's, a, there's this idea of, of uh, you have to choose in some way between being an entertainer and being a serious journalist. And, and I want to say, like, I think at this point that's just rubbish. I think, I think um, especially now with the internet, but, but I, I think um, it, like the 20-year history of our show is, an, is a massive experiment, and the shows that have come after us are just completely experiments at the idea of you, do, there can, be no, you can do this with no trade-off. Now, I think it'd be very difficult in daily news to be super entertaining, but I do think there are things that they could do in terms of tone uh, that, that would make their work more, more entertaining, actually, if it had a more conversational tone and a different sort of... I think you could do the daily news so it's more like uh, the Daily Show, you know, the Daily Show, the John Stewart, now that other guy hosts too. You know what I'm talking about? It's, that's made it here, right? Yes, of course it has. Um, I think you could actually do an actual news program which had the tone of that. Um, but... but um, but beyond that, like I think certainly like for anybody who's working on a deadline of more than like two or three days, like you, there, there, there is just not that, that same trade-off. And I, th I think that there are ways to do journalism that is, that is the most aggressive, the most serious, the most like trying to understand something in a way that, and document something in a way that no one else has documented it, which is what journalism does when it's doing its most ambitious, very best work. And, and, and be at the same time just as aggressively an entertainment where if you hear the first minute of it, you cannot turn it off. And I think the tools that, that, that I believe are, are most helpful to do that are um, creating characters, having narratives, so there's this narrative suspense, um, and then just like kind of like who you're playing on the radio or whatever form you're doing. Like, like if you're a human being in that, it allows entrance into it through your sensibility. So if you're amused at things and shocked by things and all that, and, and you let the audience know, like a good writer does in, in, in print or in any medium, then, then that, that gives a kind of emotional entrance as well. And, um, and, you know, if I can say, I was telling somebody yesterday, like, like serial was a conscious attempt to, 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 to knock off binge-worthy binge television. That is, the creator of Serial, uh, Julie Snyder, um, who, did, who created it with Sarah Koenig, Julie loves TV. She watches a lot of TV, and Julie's attitude was like, well, what's the biggest thing in the culture right now? It's these TV shows that we'll just like all binge watch. And she's like, and, and really, like, Serial was created out of a question of, can you do that with, with the truth? Can you do that with journalism? Can you make a piece of journalism where at the end, where you set up the characters in the situation so compellingly, and the questions in the air are so interesting, and you're so interested in the people involved that you'll just come back like episode after episode after episode after episode. Like, is it even possible? And honestly, when we started, we really weren't sure if it was. And Sarah and Julie used to talk about the show as being just like, nobody's going to hear this. And so we can just do whatever we want. And then it's structured. I don't know if you've noticed this about Serial, but it's structured like a TV show. That is, and it's not just like the previously ons at the beginning, but, um, but uh, there are certain like, very subtle things in the way that like, the character who Sarah plays, who even though like, Sarah is like, the most amazing writer and performer on radio, like, just incredible. And, and if I can just say, more incredible if you see the speed with which she writes it, like that she can write an episode of Serial in a week. Like, I've, it's like, I'm superhuman. Like, um, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, there were things, I remember like when the series was ending, um, there was a moment where, where, uh, where uh, so many people listened to it, 12 million people listened to every episode so far. And, um, and, and, most, and, and a lot of them, a lot of them, tons of them, we saw on Twitter and all, like people were just like, I've never listened to a podcast before. Like it was their entryway podcast for like, 
it really announced the fact that podcasts existed for, for millions of people. And I thought at the end, like, maybe Sarah should come on at the end of the last episode and just say, like, hey, if this is the first podcast you've ever heard, here's some names of some others. If you like this one, you're going to like these two. And I mentioned this to Julie, and Julie's like, mm. she's like, that's what you do on the radio. Like, that's what a person does on the radio. That's your relationship with the audience because you're on the radio. She's like, that's not who Sarah plays. Sarah doesn't talk to the audience like that. Like, Sarah doesn't kind of know the audience exists in the same way. She's not a radio performer, which I thought was, like, really interesting. She really reconceived of the whole thing in a way. Okay. What else do I want to... So I, I, I guess the thing I wanted to say about that was, um, this is just like an enormous... You guys are getting into journalism at just like this enormously interesting and, and fluid time, and a much more interesting time than when, than when I got into it in 1980. Um, like, like, just like, really, like, you can just, just make stuff up and get it out into the world, and people can notice. And also, like, because the entire industry is collapsing... Like, all the, like it's, it's going to be hard to make a living at the beginning, but can I say, it was always really hard to make a living at the beginning. Like, like, when, like I went through the same thing you guys did, of just, like, you got, if, it, if this hasn't happened to you, like, the rule of thumb is, like, you work for, like, a year or two for free somewhere until you have skills enough that, that they'll pay you, you know, like, and I certainly did that. Um, and most people do it. Like, like, and, and I feel like it, it's, it was ne it's never easy to make money at journalism at the beginning. And, so, and, you know, like, I was a temp typist for a while as I, like, you know, would try to do my radio stories for years, actually. I was a very good temp typist and, um, and, uh, and a, a very good secretary. And, um, and you know, and, and, uh, and those typing skills came in handy <laughs> in other contexts. And, and so I say, like, like, it's always hard to get started, but, but the fact that you can just make something up, like, one of the things I talk about in the show is my wife... Uh, for a while, for several years, like her boss was a 15-year-old girl named Tavi Gevinson, who you know who, who had this fashion blog that her fashion blog had a half a million readers around the world, and then she decided to create this website called Rookie, which is just this incredibly wonderful website where it's like an army of teenage girls and uh, women in their 20s uh, doing some really funny, original, great writing, you know that that uh, that she owns. You know, she I mean she doesn't own the writing. You know, she owns. The, you know, it's a, it's like her business that she created which is like, it's just unthinkable. That's like, she's like an unusual genius in a way that like, like I wasn't very good at this for the first like 12 years I was doing it. Um, uh, so, so she's like an outlier, but even if you're not her, like the notion that you can just like, you're, you're coming into this at a moment where you can make things up and, 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 and I, would just I would just encourage you, like the thing that like, I and the people who I work with are doing of just trying to make something that is like super idealistic but also super popular, like, it's, like I would just really encourage you towards it. Like it's a really lovely moment to do this. I can, before I go into your pieces, I'm just going to pause for any questions because I, I actually want to be sure, like, like, uh, I want to be sure I end up covering things that you want. So, so does anybody have any notes? Yes. Um, you mentioned before including yourself in quotes. Um, a lot of journalism in the course that I'm doing, they tell you never use I. It's a big rule, don't use I. We don't want to see I unless you've been doing it for like 10 years. Then when you get better, you can start doing that. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask, um, uh, what do you think about that? In, um, I'm against it. Using I. I mean, there's... 
yeah, so it's a two part question. So you, so you're against, but you said I'm against it. I mean, they say they say that to baby journalists because because they're they're scared you're gonna go to, you're gonna go nuts. Um, and <laughs> like, but but I feel like you know, in a good story, like what you are the most accurate witness to the thing you're documenting, right? Like there are all kinds of stories where you go to a place, you're the one who's there, and you can say like, here's what this felt like, here's what this seemed like, you know. Um, I'm working on this story on this Greek refugee camp, and um, and uh, <laughs> there was this one tent we went into where they had done the, the most incredible construction. It's like a UN UN uh, HCR, you know, like big white tent that a family lives inside. But like the people who who had this tent were, were so uh, there was a teenage boy who was just like so good at building stuff that they built like a fence around the outside. So there was an outside yard and an overhang and then tables and chairs. And then you go inside and there was like a little pantry with shelves and all their stuff. And then you go through another thing and there's a room for the kids and then like a closet with hooks for clothes and like all their clothes like perfectly. And like there's beautiful fabric covering everything. And so it's like very cheerful. And you go through another door and there's the bedroom for the parents and like with a big bed that they had built. And we came out of it. and. Um, and my interpreter, Bara'a, who's, uh, who, uh, who, uh, who's 23, she, she said this on tape, and it's in the story, too, that we're going to broadcast. She said, it's just like in Harry Potter, and I can't remember which Harry Potter book, when they go to the Quidditch uh, World Cup, and they have, go into the tents, and on the outside, it looks like a regular tent, and then inside, it's like room after room after room. And it's like, and like, honestly, like in every edit of the story, when we get to that quote, everyone in the room gets so excited, because it's like <laughs> such an amazing quote. And she's like such a wonderful like, presence in the story, my interpreter. And, um, you know, this like 23-year-old with hijab, like wandering around like these camps with me. And, um, and uh, like, you need her to be a person to get that quote. Like, you know, you, that's not like, that's, not, that's you know, she, like, that's her impression of the thing. You know what I mean? Like, and, and you need me to have my amazement about the whole thing to set up the quote. And I feel like by, by taking yourself out of the tape, it's like you're, put, you're, it's like you're leaving aside like so many different tools that are available to you. Um, you know, you're leaving aside amazement and, and surprise and, and, and humor and pleasure, but also like being tough on people. And I feel like, like, I don't, like, I don't say like, I, I, I a lot in the stories, but I am enforcing my point of view in the stories. And I, I, think, I think your teachers are, are scared of you like sort of leaving the facts of what's in front of you and saying something that doesn't relate to the facts. Like in the tent example, she is totally looking at the data of what we're seeing, and she's synthesizing it in an utterly original way that's hers. And I think what they're scared of is that you're just gonna say like, well, here's what I think about the story. You know, like, you know, like, like uh, you know, the, you know, this party thinks this, this party thinks this, and here's what I think. I think that's what they're scared of. So that's, of, of course, that would be terrible. Um, so, so, so yeah, like there's certainly, so, so, does that answer the question? Yeah. I just wanted to um, follow up with, we, I don't know if it's a cultural thing as well, but it seems with American culture, you're, you're kind of, um, it's a thing to talk about yourselves a lot. But with, <laughs> <laughs> like, with this, but with Australian culture, I think it's like, don't talk about yourself, don't, don't talk yourself far, but like, it's, it's a tall poppy syndrome we've got in Australia here. But I just wonder if that's, maybe that's why they'd, maybe it's an English thing, like, don't, you know, don't talk about yourself, and the English thing is, Know, transfer to the teaching the Australian way. That, that, that's probably true, but I think there's a lot more flexibility than maybe you think. Mm. You know, like it makes it makes me think about like when I was a reporter, like for for the news, like there were rules about what to do. But frankly, if you did different stuff, they're like, oh, that's pretty good. You know, they just put it on the air. It's not like you know what I mean. I feel like you have like I found generally that the more 
like when I was a beginner, the more my stories had moments that were special in them, it didn't matter what the moments were. Like people praised me and, and things went better for me. Like in my work got on the air more. You know, like, like, like my editors knew, like if they gave me an assignment, I would do everything they asked for it, then there would be like a little something. And, and like you need that. Like, you know, like, like, and that's, like, like you're not gonna get paid much money. And so if you're not in it for your own fun, why do it? You know, and, and, my, and when I was a baby reporter, like, like I had rules for what I was going to do in every story. And one of my rules was there had to be one tape to tape transition, um, which is to say, instead of like, you know, having a boring like story on the ABC, it'll be like a little bit of script and then a quote and then a little bit of script and then a quote and a little bit of script and a quote. I was like, well, at least once in the story, you have to go script, quote, quote. <laughs> script or script quote sound quote script like you're like basically you have to break up the rhythm because because you're working in a medium which is all built around rhythm and 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 like so that was a rule every story no matter what there was always one tape to tape transition in every story there was always one thing in there that was simply for my amusement <laughs> like just just some detail i would notice um, just something that, like, that just, uh, just I thought was funny, and it's going to be in there for me, and like that's why. Like, it would be some, like, so it would be some, sometimes it would be like one line of script. It would be just like something that just like I just wanted in there, because um, I just felt like, well, you, seriously, like, like that's why I'm doing it. I'm doing this for my fun, you know. And I think the more you have that attitude, the better your work gets. Okay. Yes. Uh, you seem to get uh, like in your show very good first reactions. Are you guys like recording the minute you come into contact with people, or is it a bit more like set First up? First reactions, you mean like we show up at the yeah, place? Yeah, like so you you hear knocking on the door, and then I'll be like, oh hello, and that kind oh of stuff. Oh my god, there's such a like it's very Radio Lab too. Almost every Radio Lab yeah. story includes that. Like, can you hear us down the line? You know, like yeah, yeah. Yeah, is uh, that set up? We any... we do that way less than Radio Lab, but 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 some of us do that. I don't do that because I just feel more shy sometimes. Sometimes I will do it because I know I absolutely need the moment we walk up in the piece. But yeah, like like yeah, there are a whole there's a whole class of reporters who like they roll from the moment they get out of the car and they walk up to the house and then they have to negotiate the social moment of like the person being like oh you have a microphone you know like it's on already and sometimes they'll warn them in advance look just for the taping just know like when I walk up to the door I'm going to already be recording just so you're not surprised sometimes they'll do that too is there ever a time where you hear a story and you're not recording and then you want to like recreate that moment sure there are plenty of times where you want to do you do it no, of course not. No. No, we don't, like, no. It, we're, we're, it's real. <laughs> no. No, we don't recreate moments. If, if, uh, if we ask a question in a stupid way, we don't go back and re-ask the question on tape. Um, we just, we just, if you said it's stupid, well, that's what happened, and say it's stupid on the radio. Like, that's it. Or just cut it out and turn it into script. Yeah. There are a lot of stories you obviously would have known about before, you know, recording them and how do you go about getting that reaction from a subject that is really authentic and new and fresh but you've already talked about the story and they've already told you it it's a really delicate thing like, you're asking a very subtle question actually like 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 it's a perpetual problem and there's no there's no perfect way i mean one of the things that we get into on the radio show is is like 
we're trying to fill out a theme, and so like there'll be a producer producing that episode show, and they'll be looking around for stories, or I'll be looking around for stories, and we'll find somebody, and you'll like you'll have to talk to them on the phone to be sure they're a good talker, and to see if the story is real. And then if you talk to them too much, they'll give you all the good quotes before you're taping, and often they'll like start to get good, and we'll be like, no, 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 don't say. We, we'll, we'll say to them on the phone, like, no, 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 don't, don't tell me anymore. They're like, this is too interesting. Like, like wait, wait till we're recording. Like, we, I say that we say that all the time, all of us. Um, and still, like, there'll be interviews where like where like the person who w did the setup just got a much better interview than we ever get on tape. Well, when they're more nervous and they're talking on tape, you know, just like it's a perpetual problem. Um, and just one more quick one. Who, who would you say are your favorite journalists? Who do you look up to? I mean, my very favorite is Michael Lewis. Do you know his work at all? Michael Lewis wrote Moneyball and The Big Short and, uh, and a lot of books which weren't made into movies. Moneyball is just an amazing book. And, and um, he wrote a book uh, on, on race that's ostensibly about football, American football, called The Blind Side, which honestly, if you don't know American football, might be a real drag. The, and the movie sucks. Um, but, uh, but there are certain scenes in The Blind Side that, that are interesting. Whenever he writes, um, he, he, he writes with an incredible uh, pleasure. Like, like he's just having ball and he's really really funny and if you go online there's a story they wrote for the New York Times that might be the single best piece of financial reporting I've ever read and um, and look up his name it's Michael Lewis and and it's about a kid in New Jersey I don't know which terms would use but like it was about a kid who basically got accused of security fraud for going online and doing stock trading online and basically he would he would go online as different people and just talk up the stocks well, like chat rooms. And, and they arrested him for like assuming an alias, which I guess is like, I don't even quite understand. And he would say, but the people do the same thing on TV. They talk up the stock. So, like, you know, just like, and, um, and, then, and then when they got into it, it became clear that the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States didn't understand the case. And Michael does a scene with him that is honestly like the, the toughest scene I've ever seen written with, by an American journalist with a public official where he just makes the guy look like a complete idiot but in the most pleasurable way. Um, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And also, like, one of the things that's really wonderful is the kid is on the computer all the time. This is straight from, like, 10 or 12 years ago, so 15 years ago even. So this is sort of new. Like, the kid was on the computer all the time, trading stocks, and his parents fight all the time with each other. Every time Michael walks into the room, they're just bickering with each other. So you get a sense of like why the kid is always on the computer. And then they have no idea what the kid is doing. Like they really, like, like the kid is under federal investigation. They have no idea. <laughs> and like their quotes, every quote is like gold. It's, it's wonderful. Um, but he's my favorite. I'm a fan of Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, I'm a fan of Susan Orlean. Um, uh, on radio, uh, on radio, it's really hard to beat Radio Lab. This guy's make me mad. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. All right. So moving forward with 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 uh, the work that you guys sent in. Um, so um, so who is Caitlin, or who did the story called Caitlin? Rather, that's you. What's your name? Ryan. Ryan. And what did you do this story for? No, no. I mean, like, was it in a class? And like, again, like, which, how did you learn to do this? Because this was so good. There's just straight up imitation. Yeah. <laughs> Impressive. And you're like, and you're a journalism student. Uh, radio student. Radio student. And have you done other narrative? Uh, would you guys have you done other narrative documentary work? No. 
Okay, so here's some things that I thought were, were excellent about this. One is the opening is just great. It's just like straight up forward motion. Caitlin woke up one morning in incredible pelvic pain. Her mother took her to her emergency. And at first they thought that it was an ovarian cyst that had burst and that was like consistent with... Okay, and then when, you get, when she starts dating Zach like a minute and a half later, um, you, the way that you explained it is totally relatable and, and real and I like that you ID yourself as his friend, that there's a complete transparency. I was just like, oh, this is my friend, that's how I know the two of them. While going through this, Caitlin started dating Zach, a friend of mine. That's how I met her. He was one of the few people that really supported her. Also, I have to say... Like, like um, I think a mistake that a lot of people make when they do stories is that they try to sound like they're on the news, and I feel like you're doing a good job imitating us, trying to sound like you're really talking. Um, like, you just sound like every sentence is a sentence that a person could say and really say as a real sentence to another person. Um, and then your performance is great. Like, your performance is super offhand. You're not, selling, you're not overselling it. If you guys want, at some point, I could play you what I sounded like when I was 27, my, or 26, my seventh year in broadcasting. I was horrible. Um, so that was great. Here's where the story goes wrong. Um, and, uh, and, and it's really interesting. Like, what you're doing is pure narrative. Like, she gets sick, she gets sicker, she gets sicker. And then, and then there comes a point where Zach gets cancer and she gets even sicker and they, and they start to diagnose. He goes into surgery, she's like into sur she goes into surgery, and you're doing pure narrative. It really is like this thing happened and then this and then this and then this. And then you get to the point where I think you just totally get bogged down in the details of her case. It's at this moment. The surgeons diagnose Caitlin with endometriosis, a condition that affects one in ten women. Parts of your uterus occurring outside your uterus and all through your louder. abdominal cavity. It can cause infertility or chronic pain. The symptoms vary a lot from case to case. So in my case, um, I had a lot of like adhesions down in my like right hand. Anyway, corner. it goes on. Like this goes on for like another forty seconds, actually. And and and, and honestly, during that point in the story, there's been total forward momentum. She's sick. He becomes her boyfriend. He gets sick, now they're both sick, they're both in surgery. Okay, I, I'm following along. And then there comes a point where you're just like, what is this story about? Like in the middle of the, like when, when she's going through the details, it's like, wait, what is, what is it about? And honestly, you can cut all those details about, um, about uh, exactly what her thing is. Like all you need to know is she went into surgery, give us the name of it. And, 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 and really what, what you need to is you need to get to what the story's about. And what the story is about, I think, um, is the thing that happens next, the next beat, which, 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 is, um, which is how differently friends and medical experts treated Zach from the way they treated Caitlin. Like, it, basically, everybody took his case really seriously, and they didn't take her case seriously at all. And, um, and hold on, do I have... Everybody understands cancer really well. So as soon as people found out it was, like, cancer, they were instantly, like, supportive and understanding, whereas I've been had trying cancer. for, like, three years to get my friends to try and, like understand what I was feeling and they just had like no clue about it at all and they just like had no idea like what it meant I don't know I felt like a lot of people weren't taking me seriously just because of my age and my gender I guess okay so that's like a super interesting thing for the story to be about and the thing I would say is like it's like it should be about that sooner and it should be about that even more even more aggressively that is to say um when she says like, she's saying, basically, like, she had this thing for three years. Nobody took it seriously. He got cancer, and everybody took it seriously right away. And, like, and, and, and I feel like the thing that, that, that in, 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 I think, a more, like, like, if you were to go back to the story and remake it, can I say, you did such a beautiful job. But, like, to say, like, you know, you know what, what would make this better? 
Um, she alludes to people who took him seriously but didn't t tell, but didn't take her seriously. And and if it were me, like I would instantly pounce on that, and I would want a name. You know, like and and if I could just say, like like one of the things that I think people don't tell you when you when you when you're a beginner is is that you want to have a constant map of the story in your head. From the from before you get the tape, you want to have a map, and you want to be imagining what's the very best story version of the story that there is. And even imagine, like, what's the very best quote that I could use for this sort of thing? And, 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 and can I say, like, like, I'm somebody, like, somebody taught me this, and I learned it in this setting where, where um, when I was in my 20s, I was, I was working out of uh, the, the New York Bureau for, for National Public Radio in the States. And, um, and I was being sent off on some, like, baby story that, like, was at the level that I could handle, which was, like, basically to go to a news conference and, like, write down what they said and make a little news spot with, like, a little writing, a quote, and a little more writing. And, um, and, so, and, so, uh, and so I was going out the door to this press conference that the United Nations was putting on. I can't remember what it was about. And I remember the guy who ran the New York Bureau said to me, like, um, he said to me, well, what's your first piece of tape going to be? And, and I was like, well, I don't know. I'm a journalist. Like, I, you know, I have no idea what they're going to say. <laughs> like, he says, no, 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 seriously. Like, in, in about like an hour and a half, you're going to be sitting at that desk, and you're going to have to like have that story on the air like an hour and a half after that. So, like, like what's your first what's your first quote? Um, uh, and uh, and I was like, well, how can I tell? And he said, well, what what does it say like in the press release? Like, what is the, what is the conference about? Like, what is this what is this what is this press conference about? I was like, well, it's about this. He said, okay, so the host is going to have to say at the beginning today the United Nations like committee on whatever announced this, right? He's gonna, that's what they're going to have to say. I was like, yeah, they're going to have to say that. He says, so so then you're going to have to come in and say like what? I was like, oh, I'm going to have to tell what the results are. Like, what what would they find? He says, right. So your first sentence is going to be this. Now, what's the very best piece of tape that you could imagine as being the, your opening piece of tape? And I was like, oh, it would be great if somebody would say this. He's like, great, go get that. And I was like, oh. And then, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then after that point, in any story, I would really think through what's the very best way a story can open. And you can hear, if you listen to the way I do the opening of the show, there's all kinds of times that I will totally invent a scheme on how I think would be a funny way for an interview to go that have nothing, like just really just pushing the interviewee around um, that we do all the time. And it's because I'm just thinking, like, what would be super funny to write, to do, to do with this person before I get into the room with them? And, 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 and we will go so far as to invent entire, like, like we'll theorize characters. Like there, there was, there was um, I'm going to come back to your story in a minute. But, um, but for example, there was a, a couple years ago, we did a story about this town called Colorado Springs, Colorado. What was going on there was like this, this, uh, this town and not so well run, small town. And there was a guy who owned this very posh hotel up the hill from there. And he was this like, businessman who was very annoyed at the way that the liberals in the town ran the town. He's just like, they're wasting all this money, and their computer department has nine people, and what do they do? My computer department to run a much bigger operation has three people. You know, and it's just like, and he would write editorials in the local paper saying how if they just ran this town according to business principles, everything would be better off. And so finally, one day, like, a guy stepped forward and said, like, I want to run for mayor, and everything this guy on the Hill has been saying, I'm going to do all that. That's my, that's my, that's, whatever he said, like, that's what I'm going to do. We're going to run this town according to business principles. And the guy on the Hill put a lot of money behind him. He won. He became mayor. And then we heard about the story because in the town, basically, if you lived in a well-off neighborhood, you would pay for your own streetlights. So your streetlights would be on. And if you lived in a poor neighborhood, you couldn't get together money, if your block couldn't get together money to pay for the streetlights, they just wouldn't give you streetlights. Okay, like that's how they ran the town. They business principles. Okay, and, um, and so they cut a lot of staff and like they did all sorts of things. And, uh, and I think we opened this story 
with um, people whose lights had been turned off. And then we went back and told, so the opening scene is just like, let's get the spectacular detail of people who just like, well, you we're running this corner business, so you know, you gotta pay for your own street lights. Um, and we went back and we told the story of it, the guy, you know, the guy on the hill and everything. And the guy on the hill is a super entertaining talker um, in a very Donald Trump kind of way. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, then, and then the mayor comes on the scene. And then we realize, like, okay, at some point in the story, we really have to evaluate in a serious way, is the town better off or worse off, right? Like, like, and, and give it a fair shot. Like, like is, it, is it better? Okay, so we wanted to evaluate that in all sorts of ways. And, and, and one of the ways is, is uh, I, I thought, like, okay, Ideally, we would be able to talk to like an employee of the town, and we had and we had various ideas. But one of our ideas was like this is a town which has parks and ball fields and stuff, and so there's somebody who has to cut the grass uh, for those things. And back when it was like a regular town, there was like a union, and that guy was like a union employee, and uh, and got union benefits and rode around on like a you know some sort of lawnmower, I guess, and and did his job. I was like, I want you to find the guy who used to cut that grass. And then I wanted to find you. Then now I bet. They, then now they were sub, Now that the whole department didn't exist, they just contracted from some service that cut the grass for them. I was like, and find whoever cuts the grass for the private company who they've hired. And in my dream version, there aren't that many people. It's not that big of a town. There aren't that many people who cut grass. In my dream version, the old guy who cut the grass is the same as the new guy. Okay. In my dream version. And then the reporters went out to Colorado Springs and they're just like, oh yeah, it is. We found him. It's a guy. We found him. And he's in the piece. And, and he totally says, it's way better now. He says, it's way better now. He says, I get paid the same uh, and uh, my bosses aren't dicks. <laughs> and fuck the union. <laughs> that really is what he says. And it's, I feel like it's really surprising, right? But it comes out of just like theorizing what it would be. And so in your piece, she sort of dangles this idea of like, the most interesting idea in the piece is the one that you don't go deep enough into. And it's the central idea, which is that people treated her differently than they treated him. And in my dream version, there's somebody who's a friend of them both, who, who always kind of like, oh yeah, 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 I know you're sick, whatever, to her. And like, as soon as he got cancer, they're like, dude, can I, you know, can I bring you food? You know, can I drive you to the hospital? And in my super dream version, it's you. Like, you know them both. <laughs> and like, <laughs> well, I mean, like, not to put you on the spot, but like, but even if it's not you, like, 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 if, if like, basically what, what I would do if I were doing that story, if I were you, is like, is like, is like, I would ask her who's somebody, like, because it might be two separate groups of people, right? It might be like, her friends are not overlapping with his friends enough, and you'd have to talk to one of her friends about like, I don't know. It was always vague. What she, they never diagnosed her. Like, how am I supposed to react? And then with, with his friends, they're like, dude, it's cancer, right? Right? Like, you know, it's name brand. Like, everybody, you know, like, it's the Coca-Cola of disease, you know? And, like, and, like, and, but then also I wondered about you, because you were both their friends. Like, do, like, did you take her thing as seriously as you took his? No. Use the mic. <laughs> like, it's closer to the truth than... <laughs> than oh, it is. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, I interviewed them both. And initially I was thinking I'm going to do a story about Zach's cancer, and then I talked to her. And it was like, it's, oh my god! Yeah. If that's if you could put that in the story, like like we should talk after this, yeah. okay? Okay. Like, because because I feel like because what I'd want is for her to confront you. Like what you want to hear is you like what you want is you you want the person who knows them both, yourself or others. Honestly, it would be better if there's more than just you. But um, but but like you want to sort of interview them separately about the things she says and have them say like well you know whatever they say. And then honestly, I would go back to her. 
Like, if she were just, like, my friend who had some vague sort of abdominal pain and, like, it's been going on for years, like, I'd be sympathetic. But, like, what do you say? Like, you don't even know what it is. Like, it's all just, like, there's no protocol for us as friends in that situation except to say, like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, what are you supposed to say? And, like, and I would say that to her and, like, get her reaction. Like, again, you're not in the tape talking to them very much. Like, I want to, like, hear you, like, tussle it up with them. And, but, but then also, if you yourself thought you were doing a story about him, if you would admit that, like, Two-thirds of the way through the story, it's fucking brilliant. It's, such, it's like one of the greatest stories ever. Like, if you would admit, like, okay, so full confession here, I'm one of those people. Like, like this story was going to be about Zach, and in the middle I realized, okay, because at least you realized it, you know? And so that, that would be my note. We should Thank totally you. talk after That's the great. class. Okay, okay. Um, all right. And again, I want to hear you in the tape. Um, okay, the next story that I want to talk about is... Uh, the story about Noel, who, who, who did that story? That's you. Okay, again, now did you do this for a class or did you do it for here? I did it for a class. You did it for a class. Uh, I did it for a class. I went out to a small town because I was going to visit there and I had to talk to somebody from the town and I decided to do it on someone who's been there the longest and it was supposed to be a two-minute piece and spoke to him for about 40 minutes and had to cut it down. <laughs> yeah, that's nothing, 40 minutes. I know. <laughs> I typically but talk to people for, if I talk to somebody for less than an hour, it's unusual, even to get like three minutes of tape from it. Because it was a, a conversation about nothing. I just wanted to hear him talk about okay. his life. But you, like you have a nice feeling for him. Like he comes off in a nice way. And so like it's a nice editing. Actually, I didn't realize that like, like I knew it was edited, but I didn't realize quite. Like when he brings up his wife, did he bring up his wife? He just brings up his wife out of the blue. Did that happen that way? Or did you ask him a question that got him to that? No, it sort of progressed. And, you know, I was talking about, you know, how long he's been here. And then he started talking about his family. And I missed out a bit. He had two young babies who had passed away as well. Hmm. And I couldn't fit it in. <clears throat> yeah. So there was a lot in there about his life, which was kind of sad. Um, mm -hmm. But no, I thought I had to put in about his wife. So, so the, the thing that I thought about that, like, honestly, when I first heard it, it there's no, like, and, and, and is this like a, the, how early, is this like your first piece, your 10th piece, like, it's your very first, for your first, that's amazing. I will play you one that I did seven years in and you'll see you kick my ass. Um, but like, but I have to say, like, like as a piece, it doesn't, um, so for like your first piece, amazing job, just like amazing, good job. But like, okay, so, but now to go into the like, you know, a real, like, evaluation. I feel like the thing that you want to do in that situation is you want to look at the bait, which is going to take you to story. And he gave you, he dangled a couple of things in front of you that, um, that if you were more experienced, I think you could have, you could have recognized as, um, as things that could lead to actual narrative. And, um, and specifically, there comes a point early on where he talks about living with no electricity, and um, how, how when he grew up, I was just looking at my thing to see if I actually p pulled the clip of this where he talks about no electricity. Um, hold on. Uh, no, I don't think I did. Um, so at one point he talks about... Um, yeah, yeah, he d I did. But up here it was a different, different altogether. Down there we had no electricity. You had to get up and light a fire before you could have a cup of tea and carry a candle or a lamp around overnight. But up here, it was a different world. It was magic. We had electricity. 
and we had water irrigation for the farm. For the I just I think I would have just poked around with him, and if it were me, I would have just said like, is there like. What you're, you're talking to somebody who lived without electricity. Like, that's not something we run across every day. Like, like, like that's crazy to live without electricity, right? Like, and I just want to talk to him about, like, like wh what's that like? And especially just look for something surprising. Like, like, in the pros and cons of having electricity, what's the downside? What's the good part about not having electricity? I would just totally, like, I would want to hear the question on tape. And, I would, and obviously, if he doesn't give you an interesting answer, you don't use it. But I just feel like... He had a unique human experience that we never meet anybody who does. And like, so that was one. Another one is that he tells this story about his wife. A pretty girl was riding a push bike past our farm one day and uh, the chain came off it. Anyway, I was the right man in the right place. And that chance, I fixed it. And, uh, but that chance, mate, that chance meeting ended up as getting married and living happily ever after. Okay, now this is a really specific class of story. This is the story of an old person who's told the same story a million times, exactly the same way, using the same words. Um, and, uh, and, and, um, and I feel like the thing you wanted to, the thing you, you can do is you can get him to narratize it. Like literally, I would walk him through moment by moment. Like where were you standing? Okay, so wait, so where are you? Are you in the yard? Does she come up to the house? And I would make him like walk me through it beat by beat by beat. Because I actually think that he could get to stuff that he doesn't usually say and might actually get to like, and I would be totally asking like, like, what was the first thing she said to you? Like, what did you say to her? Like, did you, how were you dressed? Were you embarrassed how you dressed? Were you covered in dirt? How was she dressed? Like, what attracted you to her? Like, what did you notice about her? Like, do you think you came off well? I would just, like, have her take me through it, like, again, like, where one moment leads to the next, leads to the next. And, and, and then the key in that kind of thing is to get the dialogue. As soon as you get the dialogue, your story is proceeding in real time. Do you know what I mean? Like, what did she say? What did you say? What did she say? And then when he narratizes that, like, he's actually giving you the story as if he's, like, an actor in a play, like, playing all the parts. Um, so, um, and then I would just look for more conflict. Do you know what I mean? He has two kids. He, he had a farm all those years. He took over his dad's farm, and then they didn't take the farm. That had to be bad. Come on. That had to be... Like, he's, he's, he's almost a terrible... He's, he's almost like a, an awful interviewee because everything's great. Oh, my God. Everything's so good. My life has been so good, which is, of course, rubbish. Um, and, um, you know, like, even... Like, he seems like a lovely, lovely person. But, like, you know, he had a farm his whole life. It's really hard to make a farm work and to tend to it properly and to set it up properly. He put in all that labor, and you want to say, like, okay, I did all the hard part. Now you can just take it over. And his kids didn't take it. That must... I would have totally gone for, like, conflict. When you get conflict, you get drama. And honestly, might have... If that had worked out, like, if it was a really thing... And, again, I would have him say, like, was there a day when you sat down with your kid... And, you know, said, like, I want you to do this. And what did the kids say? And what did you say? I would totally look for scenes and moments and just, like, real things. And then I might go to the kid if it, if it turns out there's a story there. You know what I mean? And then that would be the entire story. You know, like, I would just throw out everything else, throw out the wife, throw out just everything and make that the story. Um, and uh, another thing is he, he had a lot of things to say about milk. About, like, the, the milk board came in and just, like, and then the milk board came in and, oh, my God, life's really changed. I was just, like, what the fuck is he talking about? I just, like, and it was just sort of, like, I would really just, like, slow him down to be, like, just, like, 
what are you, like, I was just really, like, just asking the most normal way, like, what does that even mean? Like, wait, we weren't drinking milk before? Like, like, what, like, it was just, like, I was just really, like, that was another chance. Um, there's a point where he says that he decided to retire, and the scene where he tries to retire, and he's, like, 70 years old, is he's climbing out of a well? <laughs> And he just realizes, like, oh, you know, I'm, I can't keep it. I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I just wanted to hear you in the tape go, whoa, whoa, you're 70 years old and you're climbing out of a well? <laughs> like, like, and I would just make him walk through, like, what physically did that entail? You know what I mean? I just think it was, like, more fun to be had in, in all these things. Um, yeah, just be in the tape more. There's a place where you ask him, like, well, what's the secret to be 100? Which is really, like, reporter's question to ask a person. And again, it's your first story, so I don't want to, like, knock it. But then I would also just ask, like, people who are old are always asked. Like, 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 like I have, I'm very close to, to a neighbor of mine who's 88. And she's so, she's so, like, she's so wonderful. And she's so funny about this. She's just like, people fucking ask, like, how do I get to live to be so old? And she's like, as if you fucking know. You know, like, you know, like, she's like, I don't know. I had tuberculosis when I was 14. I lost a Long? I don't have no idea. Like, I should be dead. Like, as far as I know. And she's like, it's so annoying to be an old person and people asking you how to get to be old. And I would just like, I would have totally like pushed you towards that. I would have you like, when I, again, I'm imagining like the tape that would amuse me, but I feel like that's what you want to do in this situation. Like, are you sick of people asking you what's it like to be a hundred? Are you sick of people asking you for advice? Like, I would just totally like, I would just totally go there looking for a quote. So, so yeah. Um, okay. First piece, though, excellent. Uh, okay, then, uh, then the man from Snowy River, who did that one? Okay, what's your name? Lex. Lex. Okay, and again, what was the context for this? Uh, we were doing a broadcast at the Easter show in Sydney, which is an agricultural fair which is held every year, which is a big part of uh, Australian life. And um, that story is a, from a famous poet, um, called A.B. Patterson, who was a war correspondent as well, and it's um, integral to Australia's history and is told again and again. Um, and was this like, and, like, I didn't quite understand the context, but I assumed that other people would. Like, you start with, like, the clip of tape of the show itself, and then you just, like, launch into it, but, but other people would know... Well, they were sort of reenacting the poem every night... I see. ...at the end of the show. So I just went back to the stables and tried to find um, the cast of the show, really, and just have a chat to who I could find. Okay, so, so, so the thing I would say is, like, is like you know, like I'm, what I'm interested in is narrative. So there wasn't much narrative in it. And, and, um, and, and, the, and the thing I would say is, like, you, it's so interesting to hear that you're a print reporter because it now that your opening questions make so much more sense, is that you opened with the print reporter's basic kind of, like, your opening question is, um, how many years have you been doing this? But that's not the right question for broadcast. For broadcast, you don't start with like a fact like that. You start with like, you just, you just want, you know, you would ask that question first, but you wouldn't make that the first thing in the, in the broadcast. Okay, who did um, the story, uh, Pat? That's, that, that, that's you, that, right, 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 we talked before. Okay, so, so this was so very uh, solid. And again, was this, for, this was not for an assignment. No, so what happened was we were trying to get something together to show you we had a plan to interview uh, an interesting person, but she was basically uncontactable, so we kind of put this together in the last minute. So, got it, yeah. got it. Um, like, uh, for, for those of you who, who, who haven't heard this, so basically they tell a story about a robbery that happened in Indonesia. Somebody, somebody, the interviewer tells a story, he was living in Jakarta. It's May, it's May yeah. And uh, so it's a robbery that happens in Jakarta. Uh -huh. 
And basically, somebody broke into the house, must have made a lot of noise because they had to bash through a door, and, uh, and then they went into the rooms of, like, they went into the bedrooms, and basically they woke up and all this stuff had happened, and then there was mud, mud handprints on the doors outside, and they're like, what is that? And then somebody who was a local was just like, well, obviously, uh, they do what robbers do, and that is they go to the graveyard, they dig up uh, mud from the dead, from around the dead, and then they put their handprints on it to indicate, like, you'll, and then when they do that, it means that uh, it puts a spell on you, and then you sleep like the dead, and you don't hear them when they break through the door. And, and said it in this way of like, well, of course that's the way you rob a house, everybody knows that, <laughs> is that you put a spell on the people by taking mud from a cemetery. And, um, and, and then, and, and, and honestly, like, it is told flawlessly. You fucking nail it. It's so good. Okay, I have no further notes on that one. And then the, the Twitter trolls, who did that? So what, what's your name? Tim. Tim. So the Twitter trolls, and I have here in my notes, excellent, amazing delivery. Oh, how did you do the delivery? Was it, was it script? Was it notes? No, I, I just sat in the, in the booth at our uni and I just told the story to myself. Okay, I feel like um, you also had, I had thought you had like a great opening line. My name is Tim Rubin, and I'm going to tell Louder, you a story please. about Twitter trolls, the UFC, and becoming a prophet in Brazil. Right. Okay. You have me there. And I feel like, I feel like one of the things that, that your, your story was the only one, if you think about like the structure of narrative is like um, action, 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 idea. Sometimes you want to start with the idea. Like, 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 and you'll hear like there's stories that, that will just begin with the idea for like a sentence and then you go. Like there's a story that I did about, about uh, a guy who picked up dead animals off the street for his job. He was a dead animal collector or dead animal man. Like basically in uh, Washington, D.C., they had a bunch of guys who go, you know, like a squirrel would get hit by a truck or something and or just like animals in the street or like somebody has to go collect the dead animals. And so it was this guy. And, 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 and I opened the piece with, with me saying uh, the point of the piece, which is, um, which is uh, in, in a society, um, there are people who handle disgusting smelling things so the rest of us don't have to. Well, meet Clarence Hicks. And then you hear him say, I'm a dead animal man. I pick up dead dogs, dead cats, you know, whatever. And then cut to street sound, because tape to tape transition, as you know. Because you cut to street sound, like, and, and we're out on the highway, and we're running across the highway. Uh, together to pick up a dead animal. And so that's an example of starting with an idea. And just, just like yours, it's like it's good sometimes to just start with like a thought that will make the whole thing interesting. Again, if you listen to the opening of our show, very often I'll start with an idea because I know the narrative that's going to start just needs a little sparkle at the beginning to put in more bait. Um, I'm just going to play this one thing. Please stand by. Yeah. The next morning I woke up and I had a message on my Facebook from an old... Oh, for those of you who haven't heard this story, basically there's a UFC fighter, and, uh, and this is years ago, and he tweets... He, uh, you tweeted the fighter. Yeah, you could say it. I sent him a tweet and I said, hey, break a leg tomorrow, and then his leg snapped in half. And a lot of people um, around the People follow him um, outside of English-speaking countries largely. He was, he's a Brazilian fighter, and so a huge number of people, like millions of people, thought that I had predicted this fight. Um, so it like made the news in Brazil. It was like, Australian prophet predicts fight. Um, <laughs> I, it, it was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really ridiculous. And, um, and, and, uh, and, but you just, you just do such a nice performance of your lines in here. Hold the on. next morning I woke up and I had a message on my Facebook from an old friend who said, hey, well done. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, check your Twitter. My tweet had been at the top of Anderson's feed, and it had been seen by people <laughs> saying, break a leg. 
where you laugh in the middle of narrating it. I was like, oh, that's very A-level performance. Yeah. <laughs> very, very good. Very impressive. Um, and, then, and then you do a really nice explanation of the injury the guy had. I feel like this is, again, I think a, I think a lot of people like, would, would try to like, write this in a way that, that is not as effective as he does when he tells it. And normally what happens when somebody kicks at you is you try to move out of the way. But Chris Weidman did this really interesting thing where he actually dropped the ball of his knee into the path of Anderson's shin. And what this does is it's like hitting a baseball bat onto a rock. And all of a sudden, Anderson's leg snapped in half. And notice how the music goes away right before snapped in half. Very artful. Um, uh, but when you take music out of any setting, music's playing, the moment you take it out, it makes it more dramatic. It, it, it's like underlining it, saying, like, this is the part to listen to. Um, and it just like, I feel like that's such a good way to do it. Now, on our show, like on This American Life, we script everything. On Radiolab, you know, they just go into the studio and they talk. And then they'll go back and they'll re-record sections of the pieces over and over and over. So it sounds completely real, even though they know like, oh, that didn't work because we have to get to the tape like five sentences faster. So go in and like laugh and then turn to the tape. And they'll do that kind of thing. Like we don't, we don't go in for that at our show. Uh, but it sounds great. And, and like you just are doing such a good job. And then, and then here's the thing that would make the story better. And I don't know if it's true, but it would be really good for the story if you were at least a little bit scared at some point, were you? For a couple of days. There was a lot you of... Were. There were a lot of... There were death threats, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there were death threats. But... From Brazilians. Uh, from from Amer a, a lot of Americans. People lost a lot of money on the fight. So there were a lot of Am Americans as well. I think the people who follow UFC very closely also don't tend to use the term break a leg, like from a theatrical. So there were English speakers who didn't understand. You, you're saying so. that people like, who, who are, follow the UFC weren't in their, like, their school musical. Yeah. <laughs> like they won't be able to recite to you any of the lyrics from Guys and Dolls. I, yeah, but I went on an interesting journey with, um, with the trolls. And uh, at first I was nervous and then I kind of went, I, I would look at the... Who they no, 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 were. I understand. At some point, you, like, you fought back went, in a very effective way that you tell in the story. But like, if you had a moment of fear, the whole story is better. Okay. Like, it, like, by not having fear, there's no stakes. It's almost like people start trash-talking trash you and threatening you, and you're just like, oh, whatever. And then I just started like, joking back at them, and everything was fine. But you're, taking, you're killing the drama of your own story. And then, and then there's the moment where you, where you, where you, where you make your first move. Um, is, is your first one the Bieber tweet? Okay, so the Bieber tweet... I would totally narratize that way more. Like, basically, he, he tweets out to, to Justin Bieber, hey, break a leg, at whatever, you know, just like... And then, and then the thing I wanted to know was, when you did that, were you nervous that it was going to work? He got arrested for that DUI, like, the next day or something. So that kind of got more traction as well. Wow, the profit moves again. <laughs> but I mean, before, but I'm saying like you sitting there with your phone saying like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to make a joke out of this because this is getting a little frightening. See, in a good version of the story, in the better version of the story, it gets a little frightening and you worry. And if you actually like, if you had friends say to you like, dude, like if there's a beat of the story that you could land where, where somebody is saying to you like, like, what are you going to do? Or your parents are worried or just whatever. Like if anybody's worried and it really happened, that would be great for the story. And then, because then, like, you can have a moment of fear and then you can act, which is more of a hero's journey. And, 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 then, and then what I'd want is that you would go beat by beat through the Bieber story. Like, then you realize, like, oh, Bieber, I could do this to Bieber. And then there comes the moment where you're doing it. Were you nervous that it was going to work when you're sitting there with the phone about to do it? 
No. No. Okay, so that, that moment can't exist. And then, but then when it, did it work with Bieber? What it, like, well, it worked. See, did people know, did people respond to the tweet knowing that it was a joke and yeah, understanding? Yeah, yeah, people thought, and the UFC fans thought it was really funny. So that was when they okay. came so, onto my so side. Again, like, so there's some moment after you tweet it where the first, like, retweets come back and, um, and you realize, like, okay, I'm in. And that's what I would want to know about that moment where it's just like, oh, phew, the, like, phew, solved it. And, and, and ideally, you would go back and you'd look at your old Twitter feed and you would see what was the first reply that so you could actually quote it. So you could actually like give yeah. us that moment of like, you're standing there, if you remember like where you were, do you remember where you were? I was at my ex-girlfriend's uh, family's holiday house down the coast in Queensland. And were you looking out on the water? Uh, were you sitting in front of a TV? I think I was in, in the spare bedroom where we were staying with the whole of her family, like, outside. And I had to keep rushing into the, into the little room to check because it was really... I was, like, bad, new bad to coverage. spending time with the family. Right. So I didn't want to be on Twitter the whole time. I wanted to, like, meet the parents nicely. But yeah. also, I was being attacked by thousands of people. Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, again, like, like, I would want to just, like, recreate this moment and, like, briefly and then, like, have you, like tweet out the thing to Bieber, and then you have to have the moment of like, oh, phew, it worked. Okay, good. Because that's the turning point in the story. Um, and, then, uh, and then your ending is just kind of like, meh. Uh, here, here's your ending. You have kind of three endings. I don't really know what I learned from it all, but I do know that I'm actually really thankful that it happened to me, a, a confident and kind of stable person, as compared to somebody else who could have really been hurt by it. That's person one. You know, the internet one. and the media and Twitter, it's, it's turned into like this weird horde of people kind of wielding a spotlight. That's the second and they're idea they're not really discerning saying. about who they shine it on. Then there's a third one. And that's a dangerous thing. So think before you tweet. One? Because you never know whose leg might break next. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, so yeah, it's just not, the, the ending isn't as interesting as the story. I, I have no idea how to finish it because it just, it just petered out. The tweets just slowed down. They still happen. I still get retweets every couple of days. But so I would There's your to. ending. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Look, that, there, there's your ending. You still get retweets every couple of days on this? Yeah. And it's how many years ago? Three years ago. When, you're, when you die... <laughs> like, and they write the obit, this will be the most famous thing... I really hope not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so I'm saying like, okay, so endings, people, a lot of people have trouble with endings. Okay. And they, ha- they do a kind of like summary sort of here. Oh, can I just note his whole thing? Like, I'm glad I'm a confident person. Like it totally belies like the thing that you were saying about like, we don't say like, we're, you know, like, <laughs> it's a younger generation. You're the same generation. <laughs> You're not. So how do you end a story? Like, uh, like, honestly, like a lot of people have trouble with endings. I don't have trouble with endings because like, the entire time I'm doing the story, I'm, I, I have a, I have, I'm having theories about what the ending should be. For one thing, like, at the moment, like, since I know that the story is going to be plot and idea, from the moment I take on the story, I have a theory about what the idea could be. And I'm trying to dr- generate tape about that idea and get the people to say stuff, okay? So that's, so that's one thing. The other thing is, is, is like you know, there are certain tricks to making an ending. And one of the most standard tricks is that you do the same thing at the end that you do at the beginning. If you're, if you're going to start with narrative, you can always end with narrative. So all you have to do is find one tweet that was sort of memorable, sums up the whole thing, sort of funny, and you can just write that as the ending. You know what I mean? Like, all you need is one 
you, you, can, you can end on an example in the way that you can start with, with narrative. And, and, it, and it's pretty easy. The fact that you're still getting tweets about this three years later, like the notion that like you would like, honestly, you could in real time take out your phone and say, it's still with me, hold on, going on Twitter right now, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling here, and then read it. And then that could be the ending. Okay, preceded by the sentence, which would be the point of it, this is the most famous thing I have ever done. I only pray it is not the only thing I ever do. And, like, and, then, you, and then you would go to that anecdote and you end, you know? And, and so don't be scared of the ending. Um, uh, one thing about your story that I thought was striking, I thought might be worth talking about, is the music sucks. It just is horrible. Um, just at every point, just an embarrassment. And, um, and, uh, and just add so little. I mean, I say this because you were so excellent in so, other, so many other ways. I feel like I can freely say how bad it was. Here's this, is, a, this is the first, this is my first piece that I've ever put together okay. with music. So, I, okay. Yeah. All right. So let's just talk about some principles. Okay, okay good. Please. Uh, the, 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 in that case, fine. The, the, it was exactly at the level it should have been. Here's an example of some of the really bad music in this piece. The next day, the fight came around, and I had to go into town to this little pub. It was the only place showing the fight, and the pub was packed with UFC fans. The fight eventually came on, and the two fighters went out into the ring, and Anderson Silva threw a kick. And normally what happens when somebody kicks at you is you try this to music, move out of the way. But this Chris Weidman did this really interesting thing. Where music, he actually this does not go with the action. That's just like, this music is far too gay. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like all the music you use, you use in this piece is just like totally atmospheric. For example, even the music at the top, where you have that really great opening line, listen to the fucking trash music. My name is Tim Rubin, and I'm going to tell you a story about Twitter trolls, the UFC, and becoming a prophet in Brazil. So I'm a UFC fan, and I first became a fan in 2013. No. Okay. So, so first of all, like, like we, at some point we decided like, we, we wanted to make up like, a handbook of how you score for our show, but the way we score is the way a lot of people score, and a lot of it is stuff that I figured out through trial and error. And then, and, but then like, so on the podcast you listen to, like, there's some certain principles to this, and I'm going to name some of them here, but if you go onto, there's a website called transom.org, and if you don't know that site, it's a really helpful site. Basically, they get the very best people, or some of the very best people doing this, um, including like occasionally filmmakers and including like sometimes like super old timey people like Studs Terkel, if you know who that is, uh, did, did a thing on there when he was still alive. Um, and, and one of our producers who, who is, is one of our best mixers, Jonathan Menhivar, basically put out a manifesto saying, here's how you score. Here, or here's how we score on our show anyway. And just kind of lays out all the principles and with examples and you can hear how he does it. And uh, if, if, you wanna, if you wanna go into that more depth. I will say that like, the basic principles are you wanna, you, wanna, you wanna bring in music on the rising action. So in fact, there was literally in my notes on your sto story, which are here, um, there was a point where I was like, start music here and I'll play it for you right now. And, it's, and, and basically, you don't do it on the first beat of the action. You do it as the action starts to turn. Here we go. And coming up at the end of the year was a rematch between the two. This was deemed to be the biggest fight in the history. I'm actually going to score this, okay? I brought some music. And coming up at the end of the year was a rematch between the two. This was deemed to be the biggest fight in the history of the sport. And I was really excited about it. Could start there. I was staying in this sleepy little town in Queensland on the Sunshine Coast... And the night before the fight, I remember being so excited, I was looking through Twitter and seeing what the two fighters were up to. 
And I was so amused that Anderson Silva, the night before the biggest fight in his career, was actually at a boys to men concert. You know what I mean? What you want is something with like forward motion. Uh, you want something with a melody. Like I think in general, like music when it's just purely atmospheric, you're not using all the things that music can do. Like one of the things about music is that it can have a melody. The melody can be appealing, and then that appeal will stick to your story like a good personality sticks to a pretty girl. You know, like like. That's backwards, what I just said. And I don't even know where that came from, and I don't even mean it. So anyway, but there's like... Anyway, but, um, uh, but, uh, but like, like, like so just some melodies are really appealing, and like you want to get, you want to use the real power that music has, right? Like, and so, and so often we find ourselves in a situation on the, uh, in mixing these kinds of things. What you want is like music with forward, forward momentum, maybe a little bit of yearning, maybe a little bit of tension, and that's what you want here. Like this piece of music would have also worked in that spot. And again, you could bring it in. Coming up at the end of the year was a rematch between the two. This was deemed to be the biggest fight in the history this, of the this sport. Music is like, and I was really excited about no, that's it. That's too early. I was staying in this sleepy little town in Queensland on the Sunshine Coast. And the night before the fight, I remember being so excited, I was looking through Twitter and seeing what the two fighters were up to. This is a little and dreamier so version of the piece. that Anderson Silva, the night before the biggest fight in his career, was actually at a Boys to Men concert hanging out with his family. But it goes better with and the so Boys to Men, actually. And so I thought I should tweet him, because clearly he was very active on Twitter. So I sent him a tweet, and I or said... Or he could go sort of hardcore suspense. Coming up at the end of the year was a rematch between the two. This was deemed to be the biggest fight in the history of the sport, and I was really excited about it. I was staying in this sleepy little town in Queensland on the Sunshine Coast... And the night before the fight, I remember being so excited, I was looking through Twitter and seeing what the two fighters were up to. And I was so amused that Anderson Silva the night before... Now notice in all these, like, like it's a really... Or you could go full out David Sedaris. Here we go. This was deemed to be the biggest fight... And this is good for you to play it totally sport, for comedy. And I was really excited about it. I was staying in this sleepy little town in Queensland on the Sunshine Coast. And the night before the fight, I remember being so excited, I was looking through Twitter and seeing what the two fighters were up to. And I was so amused that Anderson Silva, the night before the biggest fight in his career, was actually at a Boys to Men concert hanging out with his family. So obviously you see there's many choices. Um, yeah, uh, what we're looking for in music often is something with a vamp. So you could talk over this part. And then when you stop speaking, you hit the melody, and that should happen here. And then where do you bring back voices? Well, you bring back voices wherever you could sing to the melody. You could sing right there. You could sing there. Basically, at the end of any musical phrase, you could sing. There, you could sing, you know? And, so, and, then, and then there's the trick that I was telling you about with any piece of music, if, if a person is talking with music playing underneath them, and they're talking and talking, whatever it is that they're talking about, I'm just waiting for the melody to kick in. There we go. Um, if at any point during this music, if the music slowly fades away, whatever I say next sounds really, really important. And like in the dance show and in... Um, and, uh, and, uh, and on the radio, like, that's what we're doing over and over. It's like introducing the music and then pulling it out right before the idea changes, right before there's a shift in scene, right before there's a shift in things. Okay. Because we have one more piece. Who did the Sympathy for the Devil piece? What's your name? Kit. Okay. Very nice job. First of all, uh, great title. You are fucking amazing in the tape. You are so good in the tape. 
like, and uh, your manner with people, just you, you are so uh, fun to listen to asking questions. Here was my favorite question of yours. Do you know what idiot introduced foxes to Tasmania in the last decade? Awesome. Here's another one. I've heard on Mariah Island, where they run the breeding program for the Tassie Devils, that 16 of the devils have been deported from the island after they bit tourists who wanted to pat them. Do you think that uh, tourist interactions, they don't quite understand that they, this marsupial can chew through steel? Or? Yeah, look, I, I guess Mariah Island's a pretty small island. I mean, just like you're so like a person talking and like I trust you and like you're funny and it's like they're great. What was the context for making this story? Um, this was specifically made to workshop for you. It was? Yeah. Okay. So you make the nerviest music choice possible. Um, and that is that in, in your story about Tasmanian devils, you start the Rolling Stones song, Sympathy for the Devil, um, like very distractingly in the middle of action. I spoke to Rewilding Australia co-founder Rob Brewster. What does rewilding actually involve? Could you explain Holocene rewilding? Sure. So and, then, and then it just keeps going. And I'm wondering just like, how are you feeling about this choice? I respected the boldness for sure. Because yeah. I was on stock music website for ages and then I couldn't find anything. And like in the back of my head, I knew I wanted to call it Sympathy for the Devil. I'm like, man, I'm just going to use the track. It's educational, whatever. But, <laughs> Nobody's going to sue you for this. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And it was the instrumental version, so there was no singing on it. So I thought it would be le or less distracting. But I've got to confess that one of my speakers is broken on my computer. So sometimes I have trouble gauging, like, <laughs> sorry, how loud it is. I'm, I'm a it's a very full-bodied stereo track, Sympathy for the Devil. There's stuff happening on both sides. It's very active, actually. Yeah, the, I think it's the left speaker that's broken. So. Can I say, for the first two years for This American Life, we were so broke that at each of our workstations, we had these like old computers we bought used. We didn't have stereo, like we couldn't afford two speakers for each producer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've been totally been there. It's like one broken headphone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. So, so I thought like, well, like honestly, like you flesh out the story here really beautifully. I think that your music choice is a little too distracting. I'll just yeah. say, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the only other thing, like, honestly, like, it's structured beautifully. You do such good interviews. Like, you are so good in the interviews. And the only thing I would say is I would just try to make your writing more like the tape. And generally, you're super conversational in the writing, but occasionally you lapse into a kind of formal, like, I'm on the news and, and writing sentences. Here's, here's, I mean, I don't want to embarrass you, but here's a sentence like that. Tasmania, which is famous for its pristine wilderness and unique native animals, has already lost one icon, the Tasmanian tiger. And now, I say every other sentence around that is utterly conversational and an utterly normal sentence, but like, I would just keep, keep my eye on that. Yes? Okay, hi. Um, if you were packing your backpack now to go out and do audio with the current equipment, what would you put in it? Um, a shotgun microphone, a long one. I use a, like an AKG. They have a short shotgun, but I think it sounds shitty. I think a really long, like the long shotgun, and they're not that expensive. They're like, I mean, it's expensive like if you're a student, but like in, a, in an adult sort of way, like it's like 150, 200 bucks. What brands do you like? Um, for the shotgun, there's like an AKG. If you go to our website, we actually name the model. Okay. I think it's like the 635B. Yep. And the reason why a shotgun is better is because it's better in an interview setting. That is, you get the voice clearer and prettier. And, um, and then if you have to get sound of like something, it just makes a prettier recording of the sound. And, and I don't know if you guys know this, but like more important in a way than the microphone is microphone placement. 
Um, I feel like I feel like often uh, when people are beginning getting audio, they're just not getting the microphone close enough to the mouths of the people who are talking. And as you know, you want it to be about that far away. Like, and sound decreases as a square of distance. And if you listen on your headphones, you hear if you just double the distance, it sounds it sounds four times as bad. Like, and what equipment do you use? Uh, we're using. I feel like. Honestly, digital recorders are, are so uniformly great now that there are people making perfectly lovely broadcast quality stories on their iPhones with the little, like, you know, that blue microphone? Yep. Like, like I, I don't think you should be fussy. Like, I don't care about sound. Like, I've got a H5 Zoom, and I don't know whether I need to go and buy something else that I've used. What are the microphones like on that? Uh, it's pretty good. It's a cross mic, and then you can plug in. I would other mics. I would plug in other mics. Yeah. Like I, like I find that mic to be like not ideal. Okay. Like I think you just get. Also, it's awkward to like with an interviewee to like point it up to their mouth, the zoom itself. So I think get a proper mic with a mic cord, and you'll have everything you need. Um, a lot of people in my uni, they always tell us that the more internships you do, the better your chances of getting a job in the journalism workforce. What are your thoughts for that? My thoughts are that seems pretty good. Like I don't know about more. Like hopefully you'll just. You know, you can get, do one and then get a job. <laughs> like, like, like I did one internship and and then I got like a sort of like a a brief job after that. And then it was sort of like, then I didn't have a job anymore. And you don't know enough to hire, you know, right now before you do the internships. Um, and you want to be picky about you do where you do your internships. You know, you want to go to places where you like the work, if you can, if you have that luxury, and uh, and where they'll give you real stuff to do. And if they don't give you real stuff to do. It's up to you to seize the day. Like, like we have an internship program at our show um, where where um, we pay the intern because I started as an intern. I feel like it's it's like like I feel like the intern should be paid, and we give the intern real work. Like the intern produces stuff, d does real mixes. Like, so anyway, like like, but 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 I have to say, some of the interns who work for the show really go out of the way to pitch a lot of stories and see that. You know, and, and, and see that they get to make stuff, and other ones are sort of passive, and when they're passive, they just get less out of the experience. Um, and, like, and I was super active as an intern, just like really like got, got as ambitious as I could at that level. Um, we, we'll leave this row aside soon and let the rest of you talk. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that this American life is pretty much fully scripted. How much, because I just assumed that you pretty much just work on notes. How do you script for your voice and learning how to... I mean, it took me a long time to learn how to do it. Because like, I was like a traditional news person. So there I scripted everything. And then to train myself out of it, I spent five years before I started This American Life doing a live radio show where I would go in with notes and tape and music and would mix live something that sounded a lot like what we do now on the air. And so what I'm doing is, is I have a script, but then often I'll, like, I'll add a lib from the script uh, in small ways. Like, like, honestly, like, the pacing on the show is very precise, and so I don't want to leave too far. And um, I just trained myself to, to sound as much like I'm really speaking, even though I'm reading. I can play you what I sounded like my sixth year doing this, and it's not good. Um, this is me. Uh, six years, seven years in. It's not such a long way from the local grocery store to the international debate over whether sorghum and meat production are causing corn to decline in Latin America. I mean, like, just, just a little tip, just don't emphasize every other word when you're speaking because it sounds really unnatural. There's a general air of prosperity here, partly thanks to Mexican imports of U.S. grains. Also, these sentences make no sense at all. 
You know what I mean? Like, like I just, it's just, everything is horrible about this. Like, I was terrible for a really long time, and I had to train myself out of it. Yeah. Um, uh, so you had a question. Where do you see the future of podcasting going? I mean, podcasts are, like, on an upslope right now. You Definitely. know, and right now, in the States, between, I can't remember if it's a fourth or a third of the country has heard a podcast. And so clearly, like, it's going to keep growing for a while. And then I think people get tired of it, and they'll move on to something else. But I think we have, like, a bunch of years before that. And, and like, you know, like, our theory, like, me and the people I work with, is that podcasting can be television. That is... Um, that, that if, if people have the skills to make the stories be as magnetic and as a, just as interesting and as appealing as the stories on the best TV shows, we feel like there's a demand for that and people will listen in large, large numbers as we show with Serial and as we show with our show. Like our show, This American Life has two and a half million people downloading every week all over the world. And you know, the advertising from rev- revenue from that is a lot of money. It's, it's a lot of money. And so, and so it's the one corner of journalism which is now experiencing like a boom. And um, the ad rates are high and just like, I think that the ad rates are gonna come down, it's gonna be less profitable, but like we're gonna ride this bubble as long as we can. And I think like certainly for you guys starting out, like you, there's gonna be years of this expanding. I feel like we're still, it's like the wild west. People are trying, to, we're all still trying to figure out what it could be. Yeah, like, and, and I, I completely disagree with this is a bad time to be a journalist. People need information. Uh, it's, all, it's not sorted out at all how that's going to happen in the digital age. There's going to be another 20 years of people like figuring this out, and you guys are coming in at the perfect moment. Um, this is Nancy Updike just doing a spectacular piece of writing um, and, 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 and taking like, total pleasure in it. And I'm playing it for you just because I feel like it's good to hear what really good writing can be like as a broadcaster. Um, the story is uh, in the first year of the Iraq War of the United States in, after the invasion of Iraq, um, we started hearing about these private contractors. And basically, there were people who didn't work for the U.S. government. There were tens of thousands of them in Iraq. And later, there were all sorts of scandals. Halliburton and all these other companies had private contractors. And some of them were doing things like um, fixing trucks and doing cooking and doing things like that for the U.S. Army so they didn't have to send actual soldiers. But a lot of them were, were there on what they called private security details, PSDs. And so, for example, the American ambassador was protected not by U.S. soldiers but by a private security company um, that was hired for the purpose, which had helicopters and tanks and all the other stuff. And we, want, we heard about these things, so we're just like, who, this is the very early stages of the war, like, who are these mercenaries? Like, who are they? You know, like, who, who, got, who got hired to, like, fight alongside the U.S. military? So Nancy went, and she's describing this one guy who works for one of these companies. Hank is the man who was brought in to clean up Custer Battle's PSD operation. Hank has a vision for the kind of men he wants working for him. Steely-eyed, flat-bellied. It's possible Hank came up with this description by looking in the mirror. He's a 49-year-old man with small blue eyes, a former paratrooper and ranger, the son of a decorated soldier, married to the daughter of a soldier, father of two soldiers, one of whom was in Iraq and is now in Afghanistan on a mission he can't talk about. Hank is cryptic. He doesn't want me to use his last name. He won't even tell me what rank he achieved. I looked it up later, Lieutenant Colonel. He's done private security work overseas before. He won't give details, of course. But he will, and this is the thing about Hank, he will poke fun at it. So you gotta be the look. The security guy looks serious. I'm dead serious about this business. I'm steely-eyed and I'm scanning the horizon constantly. And uh, usually when you go to, a, like if I go to Africa or someplace like that and you're on some kind of security mission, you, it takes you about two seconds to get off the plane, look around and say, part. oh, there's somebody else on a mission. And you kind of sidle up to him and you go, 
SAS, and they go, they nod, and then they go, Rangers, and you go, you kind of nod, and, and then finally you ask, who are you working for? And of course, he can't tell. He asks you, and you can't tell, and then you, <laughs> then you <laughs> wander off, you see? But you have that initial, like, dog sniffing each other, you do, and you, but it's very easy to pick the guys out. They all got the look. So he wants his PSD guys to have the look. Steely-eyed, flat-bellied professionals. And he walks around doing that look. But he also knows it's all a bit of a put-on, a man dance, as he calls it. And with tens of thousands of American military and ex-military and private military in Iraq right now, it's very possible that we are standing in the middle of the largest man dance on the planet. Okay, I was just saying, like, well, what makes that great? Like, her pleasure in it is part of what makes it great. Obviously, he gives her a great quote, and he tells you a little story in the middle of it. You get to the place, and you see the other guy, and, you, you know, you, he gives you the dialogue. He totally leaves a little moment of narrative in the middle of it, and then he draws a conclusion from it. He, like, gives you the lesson of it, and then she gives you the bigger lesson of it, of, like, it's all kind of a put-on. And it's, a, it's, it's two minutes long. It's a super complicated picture of, like, this guy who then you're going to follow for the next, like, 15 minutes, and just very, very efficient. And also, notice how nervy she is about using her own tape. She's repeating the same quote three times. She's not, she's not at the service of the tape. This tape is at her service, kind of. So anyway, and she's having, like, she's documenting this thing in a very thorough way, but she's also out for her own fun, which uh, you should do too. So, let's come out. <laughs> <laughs> 